This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action, with host Arman Shraki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hi, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scale. Um, I have Alex Levin with me on this call, and I would like for Alex to introduce himself and tell us about the company that he has started and, and what they do. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm Alex. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Regal.io. Uh, we are a SaaS company that builds software specifically for B2C sales teams. So we have built a uh, very modern uh system that helps these sales teams engage more customers, convert more of them online, and you know, help them treat millions and millions of customers like one in a million. The closest, perhaps, to what we do is contact center software, but unlike traditional contact center software, we actually use real-time behavioral data and customer data to uh, proactively automate and personalize a lot of the phone and SMS outreach and, and follow-up. And how did you end up with the idea of starting this company? Yeah, so a lot of what we do now came from our experience before this running B2C companies. So we had helped different brands move online. And the last company we were at uh, was called Angie, which was Angie's List of Home Advisor and Handy. It's the largest home services company in the world. And we noticed that it was it was nice, you know, for customers to have an online flow where they go on the internet and try to book, you know, a home remodel, you know, for instance. But if we took out any human touch, the conversion was lower. And if we added back in, so the opportunity, you know, for an inbound customer, so we're not cold calling people. These are customers coming through, trying to set up what they want. If we, you know, call and say, hey, you know, I'm here to help. We actually saw much higher conversion, much better retention. And so it's it's very contrary to the common narrative these days that you should never, you know, talk to your customer, that you should see customer service as a cost center. We actually saw these conversations as a massive revenue driver and, and we had, very large teams engaging customers. The challenge was that traditional software, um, you know, often was not optimal for this. So if you ever got to a site and put in your phone number and they call you 18 times, like that's what like a lot of the old software is for these teams. So reason Regal started was to stop, you know, treating everybody the same and alienating every customer and start using modern marketing methodologies in this sort of higher volume, higher velocity sales model. Hmm. Um, so with, with, within what you do, uh, by the way, uh, how many years ago you started this company? So I would know, you know, where's this stage of the company? At yeah, two and a half years. So we've grown very quickly. Uh, we, in two and a half years went from, well, I guess even the, to start earlier, the first year we went from zero to 3 million in, uh, AR and second year we went from three to nine. 
now we're continuing to grow at about that you know pace. So the company is growing quite quickly. Fantastic. And uh, one of the things that, of course, it matters in any of these businesses, especially, uh, I would guess your business is mostly or 100% subscription based. Uh, so what is very important about these kind of you know subscription based companies or any software company that is providing software as a service is what is your uh, go-to market strategy and what is the kind of the way you see it and how it evolves from the first year, second year, third year, and as you really have to keep some of those the same and those are the kind of the core principles and core maybe strategies that you stick to and say this is really what needs to stay there, but at the same time, you are really adding, removing some of the PR parts as you find you need your go-to-market strategy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we we don't come from the B2B world. So I think there's some disadvantages in that a lot of this is new to us. But the advantage is, you know, we take very much a first principles approach to everything and, you know, look at everything with fresh set of eyes. So the first year, you know, when I was doing the sales, like, you know, I spoke to every customer really helped me understand which customer should we be targeting? What profile should we be targeting? What products are they reaching across the table and saying, I need that today? You know, what things were not interesting to them? So always recommend that the founders are doing sales for the first three million or so in AR. Mm -hmm. um, after that, yeah, we did start hiring a mid-market sales team for the more repeatable sales process so that mm -hmm. we could scale up what I was doing and they all were very successful. And then now have started scaling sort of more of an enterprise sales motion for some of these more complicated customers where we don't necessarily know exactly the motion. Now, to what worked for us, like we focus very clearly on certain industries and certain size companies that have B2C sales teams where we know we're going to be successful. And then, you know, in terms of our motion, we look closest to like a Snowflake or a, a Twilio in that we have a lot of consumption-based revenue. So customers can come in, we'll do proof of concepts with them very quickly to make sure that they know it works, which are paid by the way. And then, uh, you know, most, the large majority of those people convert into annual contracts who then are on an annual contract with, let's say a dollar minimum. So it's not traditional SaaS where they're just paying 50 grand, that's it. They'll pay 50 grand minimum. And for that, we give them certain pricing. And if they use more of our service, they'll just pay above the 50 grand. Uh, and if they eventually use a lot more, we'll come back and say, hey, you're on track to use 100 grand, commit to that level and you'll get better pricing. So what happens is over time, as their business grows, we uh, are capturing more of the revenue and we're lowering their pricing. We're capturing more of the guaranteed revenue and lowering the pricing. So a more usage-based pricing with the understanding of, you know, having the commitment yeah. that can adjust the rate so they can really, you know, it's not different than, for example, AWS asking people that if you can't reserve these resources and commit to it, then I can give you a better rate. Right. But if you don't want yeah. to commit, then you have to pay a higher rate to use these servers. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the in a, in a market that's growing or when you're growing, pure usage base is always great because like everything is up and to the right. I think what the commitment does is it makes sure that everybody's aligned that this is not a short-term uh, increase and it forces the company to think through what are they really going to do on a continuing basis and yeah they're happy to or should be happy to guarantee the stuff they're, they're sure they're doing on a continuing basis so allows us also to forecast more accurately what's going to come and just a, 
a little bit of clarification for myself and also for the audience is, are you selling to businesses, but your customers are B2C or you yourself are running a B2C business? No, we, we sell to B2C businesses. So, you know, our customers are, for instance, you know, AAA in insurance or Roe in healthcare or SoFi in lending. Um, or Angel employer in, in local services. You know, these are businesses that are mostly digital and are figuring out how to move that customer demand or how to, how to capture the customer demand online that's happening. And within that, what part they need to make sort of a website and what part they need, um, uh, you know, as like a human conversation with their sales agents that, you know, that are on their teams. Hmm. So, um, it is, it is interesting because in, in my case, for example, our, the company Curve is very much B2B2B, right? In your case, it's B2B2C. And there are some fundamental changes, as, you, as, as, as probably, you know, we know, that just differentiates these two, how you create the go-to-market strategy when you go from B2B2B to B2B2C model, for example. From your perspective, what are those major characteristics that really, for example, determines, uh, you know, that the differences between B2C and B2B, if you had to summarize it, how would you characterize some of those major differences? The difference between B2B2C, like, B2, like us selling to B2B companies versus yeah. Yeah. somebody selling to B2B companies versus somebody selling to B2C. That's correct. Um, you know, if you, if you were about to sell, for example, to companies that you are selling to businesses, then your business would have been B2B2B. In your yeah. case, you are selling to businesses that are selling to right. consumers. Even I don't say it that way. B2B2C is a different kind of industry. There mm -hmm. is explicitly an industry like, what's an example? Uh, happens a lot in healthcare. Like Tia sells to Google and then Google, in that case, doesn't necessarily sell, but pushes it out to their consumers. So traditionally, B2B2C is a specific different model. We just happen to sell to B2C companies, which is slightly different. But no, there's not necessarily a huge difference in the actual uh, you know, motion. I think in our industry where, where, where we operate in our sort of segment, there's a very big differences in the amount of data. So like, give you some scale, Salesforce walks in and sells to even a pretty large sales team, you know, that sales team might have 100, 200 people, you know, might be doing, I don't know, each rep might do 100 calls a month, like something like that. In our world, you know, uh, the, you know we're going into teams of 5,000 salespeople, 10,000 salespeople, each salesperson doing 2,000 calls a month. It's just that in B2C, it's a much higher velocity, much lower price, you know, um, much less time to sell kind of sale. And in that sales motion, um, you know, there, there are just, there's much larger data, much more opportunity for AB testing, like a different set of things that the companies care about, but no, other than like the structural differences between B2B and B2C companies, there's not like particularly different about sales. Understood. Now we are at the age of this generative AI, that AI is generating content, generating, you know, whatever we have done as human that we can make it available to these engines from images to videos, to text, to audio, 
then machine can learn very quickly and just generate it the same way. Now, is it something that from your perspective can improve what you are doing, accelerate it, or have you thought about different strategies that can, in that case, really, you know, help to get better results out of such a, either for your customers or for your software? If so, how do you see the impact of it? Yeah. So in our world, I think there'll be sort of three phases to this. All the way, let's just posit that at some point in the future, the human doing the actual job and an AI with a fake voice doing the job are indistinguishable. I think that's probably 30, 40, 50 years out. Some people think it's a little sooner, but let's just assume that happens mm-hmm. in the future. Um, in that world, like we've still built all the technology that's necessary for the customer engagement. The only difference is it's a bot doing it rather than human. It's like saying you can still have an Uber if there's a driverless car. You're still going to need Uber. Just mm-hmm. there'll be a driverless car instead of a driver. Um, but that, I think, is far out. I think what surprised people is actually how fast we moved from no AI to AI being sort of, to like call that mode one to like this mode two where AI is kind of a coach and helpful and in the background. You know, so that's the mode we're kind of going to be in for a while, in my opinion, is, you know, we're going to have like, here's the next best action. And here's, you know, some things you can say to the customer. Here's a customer you should be talking to that you hadn't been talking to, or that's the stuff that's going to be very helpful. I think for a long time, the reasons why AI won't replace humans for a while are two. One, in a world where AI can hallucinate and not be right, you always need somebody to check it before it goes out in any use case that's, you know, business critical. In a use case that's talking to dead presidents, you can use AI no problem. It doesn't matter if they're wrong. But in a use case that's business critical, that doesn't fly. And two, I think one of the things that, you know, we get out of having this conversation between a human and the customer is that, you know, we have a human that emotes and really can solve pretty complicated issues for that customer. It's like it's higher pressure. So those are probably the type of things that will last for the AI to take over. You know, instead, like there'll be simpler things that, you know, oh, handling, uh, you know, support requests about where my package is. Great. It'll do that very quickly. But, you know. Helping me decide, you know, emotionally, am I ready to go back to school while I'm working full time and I'm taking care of my mother? And like, is this really going to help me make more money afterwards or not? That's a little bit more complicated. So I think it'll take more time for it to overcome that. Not that it's going to take more time. Sure. No, understood. Actually, I took my first robot taxi trip last night. So I summoned a cruise a taxi in Austin and it took me. Somber. That was my. Were first. you very nervous, or were you not very confident that it was going to be okay? No, not nervous at all. No, zero percent <laughs> being nervous. But it was like interesting, you know. So at some degree, you are experiencing that with your own car. At some degree, but this is kind of with no driver whatsoever. Nobody on the driving seat. So it's a different well, so stage. Did, good, did the cruise driverless car do a good job? I think for 90% of the cases, yes, for example, a tree was kind of, you know, falling on the side of the, the street. It was interesting to see that how it reacts to it, that it, you know, recognized that there's an object and slowed down because otherwise, it, you know, it needed to go to the other lane on the opposite side. So I had to check a number of things like there's a car coming and then need to be not just turn left, but wait and check and then turn left and 
I think it took their steps very well. And also at some degree, you know, we could see some other more sophisticated scenarios. Like, for example, the car was double parked and then it had to wait for the traffic on the opposite side and then go there. For most part, it did very well. I would say, you know, there are some fine tunings. Maybe the turns could be a little bit smoother or sometimes, you know, it uh, slowed down a little bit fast. But otherwise, uh, it did perfectly fine. And, um, you know, it could take us uh, from, and it was a 25-minute trip, so it was not a short trip, mm -hmm. but it did pretty well. So that was my first experience with no driver car at all. And just sitting there and the robot taxi take you to the destination. Interesting. Just because you mentioned, I thought that, you know, I don't know if uh, somebody was asking me five years ago, if you will see it in five years, um, that it's in action or not. Uh, you know, at least I'm not saying everywhere in the world you can do it. Or even in Austin, you can only, only experience that in the downtown area, not outside downtown. But it's it's very promising kind of experience. Um now, if you, you have experienced fantastic growth, that's, that's uh, amazing that you have been able to go, you know, very fast uh, during the very short period of time. Uh, from your experience, what is the optimized speed? What is the optimized uh, acceleration in the growth? Because there has to be an optimized point. I understand people may say the faster we grow, the better, but in reality, you are paying the price to grow. You are spending capital. You are bringing more people. And at one point, you may say this is the optimized pace of growth for a company. And it necessarily may not be a good news long term. If I grow faster than that, I may end up earning too much money. I may destabilize. I may take too much risk. For whatever reason, I just wanted to optimize it. And this is the right pace for the growth of yeah. my business. Well, How do you yeah. see that? How do you know it's the optimized pace rather than it's too fast or too slow? There are definitely different models. So m most businesses don't have a choice. Let's just be honest. Most businesses, they do what they do. The max they can grow is X and like there is no faster growth. So it's not a moot point. Now, there are some businesses where you have levers where spending more money, you would grow faster or, you know, you're growing. There's so many people that want it and you have to decide whether you're going to throttle it. So it, it does happen, but let's just say most of the time it's rare. Most of the time, the like industry that you're in and the type of business dictate the model you can support. And so it's, you know, the mistake people make is they first raise venture capital and then they figure out the model. And then they go, oops, it's not a good model for VC. I made a bad decision. So I encourage people before they go raise VC to spend some time like tracking down what's going on in the business and understanding it so that they make an educated decision on whether it's worth raising the risk basically themselves by taking outside investors and raising the risk for the investors. So I think um, do that first. When you're, you know, let's say you made the right decision, you decided you're a not VC-backed business. By and large, you know, you're going to want to make sure that your ongoing operations are profitable. That doesn't mean the company is profitable. It just means that your standard run-of-the-mill, what you do, like you don't lose money on you know, and you're only burning or spending money on things that are bets on something that's going to happen and they're very controlled. And you say, okay, I'm going to spend $500,000 on this bet because I think that it's going to pay back in this way. And, you know, the size of the bets largely are determined by how much money you have in the bank, whether it's personal funds or the company's created cash flow. You know, 
there are very large companies that operate that way, right? So I worked for a long time at a company called Thomson Reuters, and we would talk about which businesses within the portfolio of Thomson Reuters or Tosh Cows and which businesses were ones that we invested in. And so even large companies operate that way. Uh, there's a very different business model for sure, where if, if it looks like you really can grow at a much faster rate, it may be worthwhile uh, taking more capital from in often cases, you know, outside sources to accelerate um, your ramp by hiring people sooner than you would otherwise, by uh, spending more marketing dollars than you would otherwise. Those are the most common ways you're spending money to get to an outcome faster. And in a world where, you know, let's say you find a good opportunity and it's, I don't know, I'm going to make something up. It's, you know, making, uh, uh, you know, AI uh, machine crabs that go underwater and go fix pipes. I don't know if that's real. I'm not trying to take anybody's idea. But let's say you're at, that's your idea. You know, in a world where like th that's just like the greatest business model ever and greatest idea ever. And, you know, there are other companies that are in robotics that could one day, you know, they're bigger and could come in and execute. You're constantly thinking, hey, as a startup, what's going to happen first? Like, is it that I, the innovative startup, and we get to distribution? Or is that big company that has distribution going to get to innovation? And in that dynamic, it can make sense often to put more dollars in to accelerate a startup's path to distribution so you're not beaten by the incumbent that already has distribution and is trying to copy your innovation. So it can make sense. In terms of guardrails, even in that world, like people usually talk about a burn multiple, so not burning more than 2x more than the AR increase in a given period. 1x, or it depends on your size and your growth rate. Um, people usually talk about some kind of return on dollars invested. So for every dollar that you're putting into burn or marketing, or however you want to think about it, how many dollars of AR you're getting back? Uh, there's slightly different calculations for this, but broadly it's that question. If you put in a dollar, how many dollars in AR do you get back? And you know how long does it take you to get the payback on that dollar? So depending on where your comfort level is on those sorts of metrics, you set a you know, guardrail and you don't go outside of that, or hopefully you don't go outside of that. And you know, you grow the business within that constraint. So there are two school of thoughts. One school of thought says that, okay, if I had more money, I could think more strategically and I could see how or I could, you know, plan to do better long term rather than be very tactical and just do things tactically for the business. The other school of thought says, no, the more you have money, then you may just waste more money. And essentially, you make bad decisions because money is cheap for you and you have free access to money. Uh, what is your thought on that? You, you are more catering to, let's say, no, if I had more money, I could really think much longer term for my business. So maybe, you know, I could really create a much bigger business in 10 years which um, right now I have to really think about the next quarter and next year, or what, what's your opinion on those two approaches? Yeah, look, I don't think it's that uh, uh, black and white, let's say. I think that if you really have a good opportunity, like there's plenty of capital available in the world, even to people sort of in untraditional paths, in untraditional locations where, you know, you can get the money to go and invest in something if it's really that obvious. Now, uh, often it's not that obvious that, you know, having the money is going to drive the outcome. And so you really are taking a real risk. And in that situation is where it's much harder, where 
you do end up often sort of wasting the money and it does end up often not like being a good investment. So for those sort of, you know, type of things, yeah, I mean, having the money is perhaps not good for you because it's unlikely that you're going to do something that's going to result in a positive outcome. It depends what the way I think about it is, you know, it depends on what the bet is that you're taking. So if, if, you know, you have a good business that can do hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue and that's the business to take lots of money and invest it in it where there's no real possible bigger business is crazy. But if you have a business that today is doing hundred thousand, but it's actually very, you know, very clearly in this market that could be doing a hundred million, well, maybe it is a good decision. Even if you don't know exactly the path to get there to put the dollars in and take that bet. So I think the potential upside is, you know, relatively different in those cases that leads you to like make a decision. But yeah, I'd say, you know, if you're, if you're just, if you set yourself up in the wrong way, so you're in a market where there's no potential great outcome and you take lots of money, you're setting yourself up for failure because you're not going to ever be able to spend that money in, in an intelligent way. That's, that's where I, I sort of fault people. I don't think, you know, you should ever fault people if they're in a good market and, you know, there's, you know, VC capital that's trying to go after a big problem. They just don't know what exactly the answer is and they fail. Okay. Uh, or like, you know, if you're in, uh, uh, you know, a very sort of clear market and, you know, you, you take the money and just execute against the plan, cool, no problem. But there are lots of cases where people uh, sort of try coloring outside the lines of what they should be doing, and that's where they run into trouble. Uh, for you know, fellow founders of SaaS companies listening to this conversation and saying that either I want to start my company soon, I'm an entrepreneur, and or I already have a start with my company, but I'm at earliest stage. Uh, Going back to the time that you decided to start and during the very first, you know, year of experience to create something out of nothing, uh, that was very difficult from the time and challenging time for anyone at that stage. And the more you build and the more you have, then it gets easier and easier to move forward um, and, and more fruitful. So what would your uh, advice would be for them? That if you are starting a company right now and you are thinking to create something from nothing and take action, just pay attention to this one thing that yeah. I have explained. Well, first, first, I would change the setup a bit. I think a lot of people are afraid of zero to one, and there's reasons why zero to one is a bit scary. But let's let's assume you have like a little more than zero. It's actually that's the easiest time. Mm. Truthfully, that is the easiest time in a business. The bigger a business gets. The more overhead, the more weight, the more number of people, the more it, is, it gets really hard to run the business and to make changes and to do things differently. And so you hope against all hopes that you have a business that's so good that despite all this weight that you add onto it, it still is able to go and do the things it needs to do to be successful. So I wouldn't look at the world and say, oh, as a business, it's easier when you're bigger. No. Now, as an employee, sure, if you go work for some big established company, you know, for two years, let's pick a specific time period. Probably it's easier to go sit and do a job that is exactly the thing the person tells you at the big company than go to a startup where they go, I don't know what you're supposed to do for two years. Now, if you take a, let's just do an extreme, a 20 year horizon. Well, that's a really dangerous bet in a big company because while companies used to be on the Fortune 500 or, you know, whatever big list for 40 years, now the average is 10 years. 
So if you're saying, I want a job for 20 years and I think a safe bet is going to a big steady company, <clears throat> wrong. Like it's more likely in that sort of company that you're going to have to go through a massive change or the company is going to disappear. Not every company, there's some that are perhaps longer lasting, but most are not. You know, whereas at a, a, a you know a, a highly innovative company, I wouldn't say startup, but you know, the Google, Facebook, Amazon, I think they've proven their ability to innovate through the different cycles and continue to survive. And there will be something. It might be a different job, but there will be something. So back to your original question, though, of like what advice would I give somebody way at the beginning? It, it's 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 an odd one, but like you know, you can't be afraid of failure. So the people that are great entrepreneurs are the ones that are able to just accelerate the pace at which they're doing little experiments, see the result, which is 90% of the time going to be a failure very early. And then, you know, based on their North star kind of say, well, based on what I've learned, I should, I should do something different or I should keep trying different ways of doing the same thing. And that's probably the hardest part about being an entrepreneur early is having a North star vision and having, you know, some things, some piece of information or feedback that are positive towards it. Some piece of information or feedback that are, I'm trying to tell you you're wrong and try to make a decision on which one should I do, right? Should I listen to the things that are telling me that I need to change or should I stay true to this vision that I have? There's, it's a really, really difficult place to be in because there's great examples on both sides where some founders have stayed true to their vision and ended up being right. And some founders have massively been able to shift what they've done and ended up uh, saving the business that way. So that's probably the single hardest thing as an early stage entrepreneur. Interesting and very good point you raise that sometimes even if people founders think that you are starting from zero to get to one, they are not actually starting from zero. They have a lot to offer to bring to the table even day one, and they may not realize that. But there are some value there. It's not zero. Yeah, yeah, true. Like it, it is a little hard. Like when there's really nothing, but most of the time, like what people forget is like you know if you go out and you like you you find a place to work. You buy computers, you find a co-founder, you start researching, you find some people to talk with. Well, now you're not at zero anymore. You've started the process of going through this. And if you can keep yourself true towards like working in, you know, and continuing to do that, you will six months later, all of a sudden be like really very well educated about what's going on in that space. And you have opinions and you have some product you've built and you have some potential customers and you have some potential employees. And it's really not, you know, uh, as bad as you think. Now, it takes longer than you think. So, like, there's real time and sweat equity that goes into being that successful, but it's not as hard as you think. Being a data and analytic guy, I have to ask you about the data. What do you see the kind of um, the importance of data in what you guys do? If you had, you know, more power to do better with data, or if you, if the analytic technology was more advanced or you could really get hand of you know get your hand on those kind of technologies today is it something that you think your business and probably many other businesses would be very much impactful and the performance you get out of the business would be much better or how do you see that impact yeah so i'll kind of answer in two different ways one is as a business we are very data driven you know culturally it's something that we value and I think it's probably because of the, you know, our background as founders that we value that. 
So, you know, we think of, you know, data as, as not like analysis paralysis. We think of like, how do you use data inside the company to make your life easier? So instead of having two engineers debating which database should be used, which engineers love doing, uh, you know, say, well, what is the purpose of this? Well, we're going to go run the SQL query and we need to run it as fast as possible. So, okay, now I have a way of making the decision. I can run the query in both databases, see which one is faster. We go, okay, I'm making a database decision to go this instead of having arguments over opinion. So where you can use data instead of opinion, please do, it's gonna make everybody's life easier. So that's like one way I think about it. The other way is in terms of our core business, we always knew that by being very connected to our customers and by seeing all of our customers and user data, we over time could do fascinating things with that. And we had some ideas, but we thought it was gonna take us years to get to that. The advances in generative AI and AI in general in the last year have meant that we've been able to pull forward a lot of those features because we don't have to build a lot of the core stuff. Like we can build on <clears throat> top of the model. So certainly like we have more distribution already and we have a, a workflow tool and we have users. So we're not starting from scratch, but we can now leverage these external tools to more quickly build AI into our application. So I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to like just build an app on top of OpenAI. That's not great. But if you already have a tool using OpenAI to enhance the capabilities you have, it's phenomenal. Great. Um, last question. I wonder if you could advise uh, or recommend a book or some books that you might like, either professionally or at the personal. Yeah, so I have little kids, and uh, I, I, there's this book I like that's called uh, How to Speak So Children Will Listen. I've talked so children will listen and listen so children will talk, which I think is just a fabulous analysis of, of children in general. But is a, if you read it, it's a good reminder of how you need to really have intentionality in approaching you know, people around, not just your children, but all people around um, how, how you're encouraging them. And, how the things you're saying are, you know, uh, discouraging them. So, you know, if every time, you're, you know, your child says, you know, oh, look, I did this wonderful thing. You say, oh, but you've missed the period. Oh, but you missed the period. You know, they're not going to think, oh, I'm doing a wonderful thing. They're going to think I'm bad at, you know, writing sentences. So, you know, if every time they come to you and do it, you say, oh, that's, you know, you're the most creative writer I've ever met. And, you know, creative writers are often still struggle with things like everybody else, like missing periods. They'll come back and they go, I'm the most creative writer. I'm going to write a book. And I need to remember my periods, but I'm going to write a book. So I think, you know, it's obviously not intended to say that employees are the same as children. It's just intended to say we can all be more intentional about how we interact with folks. In very interesting point. And uh, yeah, I'm with you. Very interesting. Fantastic. And thank you, Alex, for being here. And I enjoyed the conversation. And wish you all the best. And we'll keep in touch. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. 
If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.